Amen. I love uh, hearing all of our voices uh, singing, uh, praising the Lord together. Amen. Uh, well, I have uh, just a brief announcement uh, prior to jumping into the Word of God uh, today. My uh, wife uh, is uh, due to give birth with our second child on Wednesday. Uh, yeah, we're uh, excited for that. And uh, so looking forward to Christmas, but also to the arrival of this uh, little one. Uh, that will be coming. And so this uh, might be my last uh, Sunday in the pulpit for several weeks. Uh, Bruce will be filling in if the baby does come uh, this week. If the baby doesn't come this week, then I'll see you next week, uh, Lord willing. Uh, but uh, uh, it's a, a privilege to uh, get to continue to to worship uh, through the study of God's word. And if you have your Bible with you, please open up to uh, to John chapter one. Uh, that's where we will uh Continue our study this week, and this will be our last Sunday in John chapter one. And so, as you are as you are turning there, we just had a, a wonderful holiday celebration where we gather together with with family, with friends, to to give thanks to God for who He is and what He has done. That is the the purpose of Thanksgiving. Uh, to gather and, and thank God for all that he has done uh, in our lives. Uh, but also Thanksgiving, uh, large uh, family gatherings. The, the conventional wisdom is at the Thanksgiving table. There are two topics of conversation uh, that you should avoid, right? Uh, if you want to keep the peace, there's two things that you should not bring up in conversation at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Uh, and one would be politics and the other would be religion. Right? Don't bring either of those up because as soon as you begin to speak about either of those two topics, you are starting to meddle. Uh, you are starting to touch on the way people fundamentally view and interpret the world. You are beginning to, uh, to touch on the way people view and interpret uh, situations, people, and events around us. And when we begin to speak about the fundamental way we view the world, things get a little personal uh, and sometimes very emotional. Because oftentimes the, the implication of me expressing my worldview and you expressing your worldview, can they both be right? No, they can both be wrong, uh, but they can't both be right. Uh, one can be right, one can be incorrect. And oftentimes that... That awkwardness can be felt if we bring up religion or politics. And so oftentimes we, uh, we try and keep the peace by being silent, uh, by not bringing those things up. Uh, whether that would be at, at our Thanksgiving dinner uh, in the workplace or a, a neighborhood uh, get-together of some kind. Uh, oftentimes we just want to keep uh, the sailing smooth. Uh, we don't want to, uh, to create hostility. We don't want to create conflict. But being silent also creates conflict with us and our Lord. Uh, because Christ has told us, commanded us to go and make disciples, to go and speak about him to others. Uh, and we have a, a message to proclaim uh, but uh, as we as we all know, even though we have been given a message, it's oftentimes easier to sit on that message, uh, to be silent with uh, that message. And oftentimes, if we believe that silence will keep the peace, that is what we will be tempted 
to do, that we will be silent rather than speaking when we should. And, and what I mean by that, I'm not saying that you need to go into Thanksgiving dinner dropping theological bombs everywhere. Uh, I'm not saying that you need to go and look for uh, conflict. Uh, and there are times, as we looked uh, today in our equipping hour, now we looked at the Old Testament wisdom, there are times to speak and times when we should just be quiet. Uh, and wisdom calls for us to understand when those times are. So what I'm speaking about here, uh, and we have this command to go and speak, is when, if on a consistent basis we are choosing to be silent when we should speak, then we have an issue. Uh, Because as Christians, we are called to go and speak of Jesus to others. Uh, Performance artist uh, Penn Jillette of the the famous Penn and Teller magical show uh, is an atheist who understands the importance of speaking about Jesus far better than, than some Christians. He says this, he says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. He he says that not even as a Christian, but he appreciates when Christians reach out to him to share the gospel because he understands that they are doing so in love. In essence, what he's saying is that refusing to pass along a message of salvation is like hating somebody. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to hold that message back from them? But oftentimes we we don't think in those terms. We just think of, hey, what will keep the peace? What will allow this Thanksgiving dinner to be uneventful? I just want my pumpkin pie and no conflict. Right? That's oftentimes what we, what we want. But what will happen if we speak to others about Jesus? Well, usually our fears are that we will be mocked, that we will be ridiculed, that we might be attacked or persecuted. If we speak of others or to others about Jesus in the workplace, there might be financial or social costs to us for standing for Christ, speaking about him. That is one possibility. And the other possibility is that others might come to know Jesus as we know him. That our proclamation of who he is and what he has done in our lives may impact them. And what we will see in John chapter 1 this morning is a little bit of both. Uh, So look with me. Uh, We will be looking at John chapter 1 verses 43 to 51 this morning. But to kind of get a, a running start, this is a... This is day four of the first week in Jesus' ministry. Uh, and, and the Apostle John takes pains to make sure we know what takes place on each of these days. Day one was in chapter one, verse 19 through 28. And we saw John the Baptist speaking with a delegation of, of Jewish leaders who were sent to question him. Uh, and as they, they questioned him, he basically just said, don't concern yourself with me. There's somebody who's more important than I am coming. And you need to get ready for his coming. I'm insignificant. The Messiah is now here among us. That is what John said to them on day one. Day two 
is in verses 29 to 34. And in that day, we see John the Baptist with a group of his disciples. And we see John the Baptist identify Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world and as the Son of God. And then day three, in verses 35 to 42, we see John the Baptist, but now he's just speaking with two of his disciples. Uh, and he speaks to his disciples and again speaks and says, there is the Lamb of God with the implication is, hey, you need to follow him. Don't worry about following me anymore. He is the one that you should follow. And the two disciples understood that implication. And those two were Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, and an unnamed disciple who is more than likely the, the apostle John, the author of this gospel. And last week on day three, we saw the beginning and the progression of faith. We, we saw these three stages of uh, understanding, uh, hearing about, and beginning to follow Jesus. Uh, we, we see that Jesus then called those two disciples of John to take steps of faith. He says, come and see where he was staying, who he is, what he is all about. And then faith multiplied as Andrew went and told. He went and spoke to his brother Peter says, hey, Peter, I got to bring you to Jesus. You got to know this man that we have found the Messiah. We have found him. Andrew took that final step of going and telling others about the Savior that he had found. And that brings us into what we will look at today on day four. Starting in verse 43, what we will see is the good news of Jesus Christ being shared with others. That it doesn't stop with one or two disciples, that it continues to be passed on. And that those who come to hear about Jesus and believe in him as the one promised by the Old Testament by God, they begin to go and tell others. So what we have last week is the, the beginning of faith, and what we have this week is the beginning of evangelism. The beginning of proclamation about who Jesus is. Read along with me our verses for this morning, starting in verse 43. As the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what we will see in these verses, uh, like I said, is the progression of evangelism. 
uh, the progression of proclaiming who Jesus is and what he has done. And we will see this morning how faithful evangelism begins, how it progresses, and ultimately how it culminates. And the reason there are three portions of this is because in this paragraph, there are three different conversations between individuals. The first conversation takes place in verses 43 and 44, and it's between Jesus and Philip. The second conversation is in verses 45 and 46, and it's a conversation between Philip and Nathanael. And then there is a third conversation in verses 47 to 51, a conversation between Jesus and Nathanael. And in these three conversations, we'll see three patterns of what it looks like, uh, of what faithful evangelism uh, takes place, what patterns accompany it. Uh, And faithful evangelism, I'm going to use that term frequently today, but I thought I I needed to define it. Faithful evangelism uh, is not you saving anybody. Uh, We're not able to save anybody. We are simply messengers. We've been entrusted with a message to tell people uh, who Jesus is and why he came. We carry that message, we proclaim it, and that's faithful evangelism. We proclaim the message that's been given to us, and then we leave the results up to God. To work in people's hearts. I can't transform anyone's heart. You can't transform anyone's heart. But we are simply message carriers. We are ambassadors representing a king who is not present with us. And faithful evangelism is simply the clear proclamation of who Jesus is. And then what people are called to do in response to him. So let's begin to look at uh, these three conversations. These three patterns uh, that are representative of what will take place in faithful evangelism. And pattern number one is that faithful evangelism begins when we decide to go and tell others about Jesus. And that is in verses 43 and 44, where John writes, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so verse 43 is made up of, of two sentences. And while the ESV translates the first sentence as Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip, uh, the ESV is trying to make uh, what is ambiguous more clear. Uh, they, they rearrange some things from the original Greek. The, the New American Standard Translation is a little bit more accurate here because there's ambiguity in this verse. The NASB says this, says the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. See, in the Greek, there's no name given to us at the beginning of the verse. So so we don't know who he is. It could be Jesus because Jesus is mentioned in the second part of the verse, but it could also be the last person who was mentioned as a subject in the previous paragraph, which would be Andrew. Now, there are, uh, you know, commentators and pastors are divided on, on who the he is. And it's a significant question, right? Who is going and doing the, the seeking and searching for Philip? Is it Andrew or is it Jesus? Uh, and while the majority of commentators uh, believe that it, that Jesus is the subject of he's the one who decided to go into Galilee, I personally think that it is Andrew. And here's why. Number one, because 
the name of Jesus doesn't appear until the second part uh, or the second sentence of the verse. And because the name of Jesus appears in the second verse or the second part of the, the verse, uh, you wouldn't. Uh, it's, it's typically not the way that you, you arrange a sentence. You don't usually introduce he, he, and then give a name. Usually you give the name first, uh, and then you say he. So be, because Jesus is mentioned in the second sentence of the verse, it seems to indicate there's a, there's a switch between the first individual that's indicated and the second individual who is clearly Jesus and identified as such. Additionally, now Andrew being the subject here makes more sense in light of verse 41. If you look back into the previous paragraph, speaking of Andrew, it says, He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him. And again, I think that that declaration, that clarification is that he first went and found Simon. It's because later on, what did he do? He went and found Philip. Uh, It also makes sense in light of verse 44. So why is that little detail given in verse 44? Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. See, Andrew, uh, if he is the one, the he, who's determining to go to Galilee, then he knows Philip already because Philip is from his city. Bethsaida is the city of Peter and Andrew. These two brothers. Uh, And given that this is the the first week of Jesus' ministry, it's likely this is Philip's first encounter with Jesus. And the reason that he obeyed the command, because Jesus comes and says, follow me. And that's the first interaction that that Philip is having with Jesus. My my first question would be, who are you? Why are you calling me to to follow you? But But if your friend Andrew has come with Jesus and then Jesus says, follow me, and you see maybe Andrew there and Peter uh, and John. You might you may know all three of them. And those three men that you know are following Jesus. Then when Jesus says, follow me, that makes more sense to Philip. And he can understand that and then act upon that. Uh, and so while I, while I believe that the first part of verse 43 is, is Andrew... Kind of stepping away from what the ESV says and siding with what the, ES, the NASB translates it as. Uh, I think it's obvious that Jesus also accompanied him on this journey. Because Jesus is the one who now speaks and is there with Andrew saying, follow me. And, and, and Jesus gives a command to this person that he wants to become his disciple, which is totally breaking with the normal way of things. See, in the ancient Near East, there were, there were many teachers, uh, but disciples would go and choose their teachers. They would, would, would begin to hear about a teacher, begin to, to hear him, and then say, okay, I'm going to follow you. And the, and the disciple would be the one to attach themselves to the teacher or to the rabbi. But what does Jesus do here? He comes along with Andrew and he says, hey, no, you, you follow me. I'm going to choose you as a disciple. You come Listen to me and abide by what I am going to teach you. And if you think about this here, there is a great intentionality on the part of Andrew of determining, of deciding to go to Galilee to find his friend Philip so that he could introduce him to Jesus. A great intentionality here. He's he's willing to to walk a great distance back over uh, to a city to visit his friend and that little phrase says, and he found Philip. 
Well, to find something or someone means that you were doing what? That you were looking. That you were searching. Finding someone is a purposeful act of looking for them and then going to them. And that's what we need to understand here. That evangelism begins with intentionality. Evangelism begins with us making a decision that I'm going to pursue someone so that I could share Christ with them. They need to know who Jesus is and the impact that he has had on my life. But our intentional pursuit of others must also be motivated by a heartfelt concern and a love for them. Uh, there, there's a way of going about uh, sharing the gospel where it's, where it's just about us. Uh, and there are other, other groups, uh, other offshoots of Christianity, uh, other Christian cults, so to speak, that, that come and knock at your door uh, trying to, to share the gospel with you. But in doing so, it's oftentimes a selfish motivation. Because they believe, hey, if I, if I win a certain number of people to Christ, I will earn my way to heaven. Which is, again, so they're coming and knocking at your door, sharing the gospel with you is a self-serving motive. But as we share the gospel with others, as we begin to be intentional, we have to be motivated by heartfelt concern and love for them, even as we see here with Andrew. Andrew can't stop bringing people to Jesus. As I mentioned last week, every time we see Andrew in this gospel, he's bringing other people to know Jesus. And we have to begin to develop a concern for others if we are going to do the same. There is a, a story told by uh, the Reverend Fernando uh, Vangioni. And he, s- he says that there was a, an occasion when he was in South America for a series of meetings and after one of the meetings, a woman came up to him and said, I wonder if you would take time to speak to a girl whom I am bringing to the meeting tomorrow night. She went up to New York some years ago, full of hope, thinking that America was the land of opportunity. And instead of doing well, she went through terrible times in the city. She was used by one man after another. All treated her badly. And now she has returned to this country very bitter and hostile to all forms of Christianity. And so the, the evangelist said that he was willing to speak with her. And so the next night, the girl was there. Uh, and when Mr. Vangioni uh, and her met, uh, she uh, didn't have any really a response to his attempts to speak with her. Uh, and he said that he had never looked into eyes that were so hard looking or listened to a voice so hostile as what he heard and saw in her. And at last, after making no progress with her, Mr. Vangioni asked, do you, do you mind if I pray for you? And the girl said, pray if you like, but don't preach to me. And don't expect me to listen. So he began to pray. And as he prayed, he was greatly moved. Something in the tragedy of her life caused tears to run down his face as he prayed for her. And at last he stopped and, and there was nothing to add. So he, he said, all right, you can go now. But she didn't go. Instead, she was so impacted by his prayer for her and his concern for her. She says, no, I won't go. You can preach to me now. No man has ever cried for me before. That's the, the kind of concern that we need to have for others. That's the kind of intentionality to pray, weeping as we pray, 
for others to come to know Christ? Are we ready to pray for people in that way? Are we ready to be intentional in speaking to others about Jesus? Are we convinced that they need to know the one who has saved us? Are we convinced of the transforming power of the gospel? If we have, we should be willing to share that with others. Are we ready to go out to seek to save the lonely and the crushed in spirit, the lost? Do we have a burden for them? In these verses, we have Andrew bringing Philip to meet Jesus. We have Jesus calling Philip to follow him. All of this begins with a decision on Andrew's part. That he determined to go to Galilee so that his friend Philip would know Jesus. Evangelism begins when we make that decision. Evangelism is an intentional action. It doesn't necessarily happen by accident. We wish it would, right? It would be nice if people just came up to us, what must I do to be saved? But that doesn't usually happen. We have to go and be intentional. And will we make that decision? Are we willing to be intentional? One of the things that we really encourage in our small groups here uh, is something that we call prayer, care, share. Now, and it's, there's nothing special to it, but it's a way of being intentional. So it's a, it's a, a method to, to be intentionally praying for individuals in our lives, whether that would be friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members. How can we pray for them? And Lord willing, weeping as we pray because we want them to come to know Christ. Praying for them. Then looking for opportunities to care for them. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to say that his disciples, the characteristic that is most definitive in our lives should be love. That people should know us. People should know that we are disciples of Christ because of our love for one another and for others. So we should look for ways to to pray, look for ways to, to care for them, and then look for ways to share the gospel. Faithful evangelism is the proclamation, the, the message about Christ, speaking to them about who he is, who we are, and what the right response to Jesus is. And we have to be intentional in that. Will you be intentional? Will you make that decision to go and tell others about Jesus? Andrew did. And as we will also see, the person that Andrew was intentional with and towards, Philip, that Philip then turned around and did the same exact thing. Philip hears about Jesus from Andrew, and then in the very next verses, Philip goes and finds Nathanael, which leads us to our our second conversation, our second pattern that we see, that faithful evangelism progresses when we endure scoffing, from some who hear about Jesus. Look with me at verses 45 and 46. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And what we see here, the second conversation of the day, is that in the same way, again, Andrew came and found Philip. Philip now goes and searches for and finds Nathanael. 
And here we're introduced to Nathanael, and we are not 100% sure who Nathanael is. See, Jesus had many uh, normal disciples who followed him and his teaching. Uh, and Nathanael could be among their number. Uh, he could be one of the, the 70 that Jesus sent out. That is a possibility, but it's also likely that Nathanael could be Bartholomew. A man named Bartholomew is one of the 12 disciples, uh, one of the 12 apostles, uh, who were that inner circle with Jesus. And Bartholomew is, is an Aramaic way of saying son of Bartholomew. Uh, so it's, it's just a name referring to who uh, his dad is, similar to the way that, that Jesus is identified as the son of Joseph here. Uh, that it could be that Nathaniel is his given name and Bartholomew is what he was called because he's the son of uh, Tholomaeus. And, the, uh, but, and additionally, in, in each of the other Gospels, there's a list of the 12 disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in each of those lists of the 12, uh, Philip always occurs right next to Bartholomew. So it would make sense for Nathaniel and Bartholomew to be one and the same. So Philip goes and he finds Nathanael, and then he makes an announcement to him. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Four parts to what he announces. Hey, we have found the one that was written about, the one who was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy, the one who's predicted later on by, by the prophets. We found him. And he explains who he is of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And, and what's ironic is the Apostle John, as, as he's writing this, he's already gone to great lengths to make sure we understand that Jesus is a lot more than the son of Joseph, right? He, he's gone to great lengths to see that, no, Jesus is the son of God. He's the adopted son of Joseph. But what we see here uh, is as what the Apostle John does is he, he, he records how the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is grows and advances the longer that they follow him. That they know Jesus more and more the more time they spend with him. And so we can chuckle as he's identified as the son of Joseph because he is so much more than that. So Philip comes excited, sharing this news that he has found the Messiah. He shares this with Nathaniel, and what does Nathaniel say? He gives this response, kind of a uh, kind of revealing, I guess, a little bit of a small town rivalry. He says, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Kind of scoffs and, and, and chuckles initially at what Philip has told him. How can this be that the Messiah comes from Nazareth? Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. How can anything good come from there? His, his immediate response is to, to scoff at what was said to him. And as we go and speak to other people about Jesus, what can we expect? That there will be some people who do exactly like Nathaniel did, who kind of scoff at us. Say, really? You want me to believe that? You expect me to believe that, that all I have to do is, is trust in Jesus, to look to Him, to believe that He's the Son of God and all my sins are forgiven? You expect me to believe that He, he rose on the third day? Well, yeah, we do. Because that's what the, the Word of God teaches us. 
That's what was attested to by eyewitnesses. There will be many who scoff when we tell them about Jesus. And this, this is hand in hand with what the Apostle John has already told us. If you look back at verse 9 in chapter 1, John already said that, that the true light, which, was, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And that's what was predicted about the coming of Christ. Not everybody would receive him. In fact, the world that he created wouldn't even come to know him. A little bit of irony there. And then he came to his own, his own people, his own property, and his own people didn't receive him. And that is what we see. As we share the gospel with others, there will be some who, who scoff. There will be some who reject what we say. But then in verses 12 and 13, we see that while there are many who reject, there are many who do not know Christ, there will be some who receive him in faith. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you can think of it this way. As we go and speak about Jesus to others, we'll get two responses. Uh, some will be like moths and some will be like roaches. Be- because when the lights go on, hopefully you've never experienced this, but, but when the lights go on, how do cockroaches respond? They run away. They, it burns, it burns. I don't want to see the light. It exposes them. But what do moths do when a light comes on? They gravitate to it. They they go to the light. And sometimes a roach turns into a moth. Someone who previously ran, someone who was previously scoffing, turns to Jesus instead. And we see that to a certain degree in Nathaniel. While he initially scoffs at what Philip tells him he doesn't continue to scoff. So in that sense, he is not a continual scoffer. But we also see in Philip's response, the best response to scoffing. What does Philip say to him? He doesn't try to get into this argument. Well, let me demonstrate. Here's all of the the evidence. Here's all of the proof. What does he say? His response is really simple. Hey, you just got to come and see for yourself. Just, Just come and see Jesus that I have come to know. And that's usually the best answer to a scoffer. You say, hey, have you ever read Scripture? Have you ever read the Bible? And usually the response is, well, no. Uh, So what should we do? Just encourage them to read. Offer to read with them. Say, would you be willing to read the Bible with me? Would you like to come and see who Jesus is, who he claims to be? I'd be willing to do that with you. And be patient with people as we speak with them about Jesus. And do your best to just help them see Jesus for who he is. Again, you can't transform their hearts. But I know that God's word can. And so if we bring people to Jesus, how do we do that now? We bring them to God's word. We say, look at the Jesus that I believe in. This is the, the second pattern of faithful evangelism that we see here. That evangelism progresses as we endure scoffing from others. And, and believe it or not, sometimes people will, people will give you a hard time just to see how you'll respond. 
just to see if you really care, if you really love them, that they'll push your buttons. How, how patient are you willing to be with me? What about now? What about now? What about now? They want to see if you, if you have really been transformed, if you're really loving and following Jesus. Because if you're not, they're not going to be interested. If you're hypocritical, if you're living a life that hasn't been transformed by Christ, they don't want what you have. But if you have been transformed, then your life is attractive to them. Then you have something that you might be willing to say to them, something to offer them as you speak of who Jesus is and how he has transformed you. And this second pattern leads to our our third pattern. As I mentioned, there are some who will scoff, but we can say with encouragement and hope that faithful evangelism culminates in some developing faith as they behold Jesus for themselves. We see this in verse 47 to 51. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And and as you might have begun to notice, and what we're going to see even more so as the Gospel of John progresses, there's a whole bunch of dialogue uh, in this Gospel, more so than the other three Gospels. There are a whole bunch of conversations and a whole bunch of back and forth sayings and statements between Jesus and whoever he's talking with. Uh, And that's what we see here, this back and forth between him and Nathanael. What we see at the beginning is Jesus makes a statement to Nathanael about Nathanael uh, in verse 47. uh, And he, in saying, uh, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is kind of making a uh, a play on words there. See, uh, Israel in the Old Testament was a person. It's a, a nation and it's a person. The, the, the father of Israel is a, a man named Jacob. Uh, and Jacob's name literally means deceit because he was a deceiver. Uh, and so, but as God worked in Jacob's life, transforming his heart, God renamed Jacob, the deceiver, into Israel. And so what, what Jesus is saying here as he, as he looks uh, at Nathaniel and can know his heart, know who he is, he says, hey, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Kind of, here's an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. He's all Israel. He's all transformed rather than all deceiver. And what Jesus is saying here, he's pointing out the fact that, that Nathaniel is a certain type of Israelite. He's one who was looking for the coming Messiah. And even though he initially scoffed, he was willing to to investigate. He was willing to pursue and find out answers regarding uh, the claims of Philip. Uh, And that's what he's saying. Hey, here's an Israelite who's, in essence, willing to listen, who has no guile, no deceit in him. And then that raises a question on Nathaniel's part. How do you know me? Who are you to say who I am? It's like, I've never seen you before. And then Jesus gives a response And the point of Jesus' response is that Jesus knows all things, that he is omniscient. 
that he knew where Nathanael was and what Nathanael was doing before he could see Nathanael physically. And Nathanael immediately understands what this implies and what the significance of this, that, that Jesus knows where he was before they met. And Nathanael comes to some conclusions in verse 49. We see three titles, three names that he speaks of Jesus. He says, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Those are messianic titles. So Nathaniel sees who Jesus is, his, his obvious, I guess, exercise of divine omniscience, that he knows everything. And he immediately says, all right, I know who you are now. You know who I am because you're omniscient. Uh, and I know who you are because you're omniscient. That you have to be the Messiah. You have to be the Son of God, the King of Israel. That is what he concludes. And then Jesus, in essence, says, you ain't seen nothing yet. There are greater things to come. And Jesus again points back to something in the Old Testament. If you turn with me to, to Genesis chapter 28. Jesus is going to point backwards to an event in the life of Jacob, in the life of Israel. This is where Jacob the deceiver is on the run. He's just stolen his brother's blessing and now he's having to flee for his life. And he's in such a hurry. In verse 10, we see Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So Jacob traveled about 42 miles, and you know he's tired. How do I know that? Because he's using a rock as a pillow. Like, that's, that's not my, my bed of choice. But he's so tired, so exhausted, having run for his life. And then verse 12, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And what we, what we see here, this vision that was given to Jacob, was given to indicate that he was going to have a greater confirmation of the promises that God laid out for him after that. Here's this vision Angels ascending and descending on this staircase between heaven and earth. Angels in ascending and descending. And the point of the vision is that Jacob would receive heavenly confirmation of the promises of God. And now Jesus quotes and refers back to this passage, telling Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. What you will see to come is going to give you further assurance 
greater confirmation of the promises of God. That what God has spoken will take place and will come true, especially regarding the Messiah, especially concerning Jesus. And if you jump back to John chapter 2, it's interesting that Jesus says this, of, hey, there are greater things to come. And then what happens in John chapter 2? What heading do you see there? See the ESV, the wedding at Cana. And that's where Jesus performs his first miracle. Turns water into wine. Says these, this was the verse uh, 11 in chapter 2. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So Jesus tells Nathaniel, hey, there is more to come. And then Jesus immediately begins to, to show that and demonstrate that. To affirm what he has said. And what's, what's amazing here, what, what we see is that Philip couldn't answer all of Nathaniel's objections. And he didn't try to. He just simply said, hey, come and meet the one who's made such an impact on my life already. Come and meet the one that I have seen and believed to be the Messiah. As we share the gospel with others, some will scoff, but there will also be some who believe. There will also be some who receive what we say. Take it as truth and then begin to act on it. And again, faithful evangelism is just us proclaiming that truth. Us pointing to Jesus. And before you kind of freak out on me, of how do I do that? What if I say the wrong thing? Notice what... Nathaniel says. Notice what Andrew says. Notice what, what Philip says. Not, not Nathaniel. But the message that they give and they pass along to others is really simple. It has three components. Number one, I found Jesus. Number two, he's changed my life. And then number three, come see him. Come meet him. That, that, that's the, the gospel call here in John 1. Come see the one that I now believe in and trust to be the Messiah. And what we see in this passage are these, these three patterns to evangelism. And it begins with a decision that we make to go and tell others about Christ. It progresses as we endure scoffing, as we're willing to, to take a little bit of that on. Say, I'm still going to share and I'm still going to call people to come and see who Jesus is. And it culminates in some people... Seeing and beholding Jesus in faith where they previously scoffed. And that's what culminates the first chapter of John's gospel. It's an amazing chapter. And what we've seen is who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. What we've seen is we are to believe in Jesus and we've seen what we are to believe about Jesus. And what's unique about this chapter, there is no other chapter in Scripture that has as many names and descriptions of Jesus as this chapter. If you, if you think about it and, and just look with me, in verse 1 we see Jesus is the Word, the Logos. Verse 4 we see that He is the light of men. Verse 9 we see that He is the true light. Verse 14 we see that He is the only Son Verse 15, we see that he is greater than John the Baptist. Verse 17, he's given the title of Christ. Verse 18, he's the only son, the unique son. Verse 23, 
We see that He is the One. He is the Lord that we are to make straight the way of, as John the Baptist proclaimed. Verse 29 and 36, we see that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Verse 33, we see that He is the One who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, we see that He is the Son of God. He is Rabbi. He is Messiah. He is the One of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. He is the King of Israel. And then... In verse 51, the title that Jesus uses of himself most frequently is the Son of Man. All of these titles, all of these things that we are to believe about Jesus. And then we also see how we are to respond to Jesus. Come and see who he is. We have all of the facts and now we are being invited to follow him. To come and behold him who he is and all that he has done. And have have you done that? Have you believed, have you trusted in Christ? Do you believe all of those titles to be true? Do you believe the Jesus of John 1? And if you do, are you following him? And if you are following him, are you calling others to follow him? Are you, are you being intentional, seeking out others? Hey, come with me. Come meet Jesus. Come meet the man, the God who has transformed me. And again, that simple message that we proclaim, I have found Christ. He has changed me. And won't you come to meet him? Can we do that this week? Can we do that this season as we celebrate the coming of our Lord to the earth? As we celebrate the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that's, that's the point of the Christmas season. That's what we celebrate. And there is no greater time of the year to invite others to see and behold the Jesus that you know, believe in, and love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come acknowledging that you are the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. You are the, the Messiah predicted and foretold in, in the Old Testament. Lord, you are the one who has come to ransom the captives. And not only Israel, but to all who look to you in faith. So Lord Jesus, we thank you, we praise you. Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have worked in our lives. We thank you for calling us to follow you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We pray that you might help us to come and see, behold you to a greater extent each and every day. And as we are coming and beholding you for who you are, Lord, may we also intentionally bring along others with us. Lord, burden our hearts to see others come to know you as well. And use us as instruments in your hands, as faithful messengers, to proclaim that simple message of the gospel. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. That you are the one, the only one who is able to save us because of what you have accomplished in your life, in your death, and in your resurrection. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we long to tell others about you. May you bless our worship.
and our proclamation on your behalf this week and beyond. And we pray this in your powerful name. Amen.